0: Okie dokie, a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD.
1: Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 53. Last week we saw where Jesus was describing to his disciples aspects about the Messiah coming and how that's going to bring division between Mm. people, Um, and that is something to be expecting and anticipating. It's not going to be something that you can get around or bypass in some way. He made it seem like it was a fact that it was going to happen. Yeah. Um and then he countered that with this division and judgment that's going to happen with the kingdom and the world to come by sort of encouraging and uplifting this message by telling them that like your your father in heaven values you so much more than his created world and he yeah. he, he cherishes that like in and of itself so take heart to that that even though all these things are going to happen in order for the fixing of the world, um, he has humanity's best interest at heart. Yeah.
0: And it's a funny thing because you were talking about, uh, you know, division or, you know, what he's not done. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's going to get, I, I don't know, maybe you call it worse or whatever. He's going to continue. So we can move on to that. But just to uh, remember, this all started with Jesus was going to send the 12 out on a mission. And he started talking about, you know, this is what you can expect on that mission, and he seemed to kind of work his way out to something that's more universal or crosses time and generations or whatever, and we're still in that. So uh, let's start reading. We were in Matthew chapter 10. We're going to read verses 34 to 39. Check this out, Samuel. (laughs) Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Feeling cheered up yet? Not at all. <laughs> Isn't that heavy? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, okay, let's talk about a couple of things in here because this, this is actually going to get really interesting. Number one, you know, he starts out with the whole thing of do not think that I have come to bring peace. All right. Now, on one hand, these words seem very, very clear. And yet, I mean, you don't even have to read very far, or very much, you know that they... They seem to contradict almost almost the whole story, some other specific sayings that we can find around. And, and, and this is a difficulty. Somehow we need for the whole story to make sense. And so, right here, let me start by saying, Jesus isn't saying, and I would say he can't be saying that he literally did not come for the sake of peace. I mean, my goodness, we call him what, Samuel? The Prince. The Prince of Peace. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So th- th- there's something, what, what is really going on here? Well, number one, this is really, really important. When we use the word peace, especially in English, there are some varying meanings, right? One of them uh, is like this idea of reconciliation. When there's a problem between two parties and then that gets reconciled, we call that peace. But then there's another thing when it's like, oh my gosh, my life is filled with, I don't know, turmoil or drama or, you know, lots of interruptions or whatever it be. And, but then there's also like that state of peacefulness. Well, that's another thing we talk about with peace. So think about this: what Jesus has done, or you know, is doing in this text and, and this whole story. He is reconciling man to God. There was a separation. There was a problem. He's reconciling. So in that sense, of course, he is bringing peace. Uh, but of course, when he brings this peace, who he is, and what he's saying, and what he does, what he expects, etc. Well that's not necessarily going to make everybody happy. Not everybody's going to be interested. So I don't know. We might think or he may he may also be saying he didn't come for the sole purpose of peace or 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 maybe even maybe even he's saying that uh, he's only inaugurating peace, right? That whole idea of the kingdom won't arrive all at once. It's going to start small and grow. See, the very source of peace that he is bringing this whole kingdom message, it's going to result in division or some non-peace. Meaning, you know, it's not going to be calm and peaceful anymore, right? And and what does that mean? Well, between people. It, it's like a sword. A sword divides. And so there are going to be those who accept it and those who do not. It's going to lead to trouble for relationships, and this is going to be even among friends and family, those closest to you, this could drive a wedge, it could cause a problem, and as we said before, we've got to do everything within our power to try to maintain those and yet be realistic and understand that this may happen, this may come, it can be expected.
1: Yeah, well, doesn't even the Apostle Paul later in one of his letters say, if, if it is all possible... Try to make peace with one another. It, yeah. It's almost as if he was saying that there's going to be, oppor- not opportunities, but there's going to be circumstances where no matter how hard you try, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's not all up to you because guess what? There's two people involved in a relationship. And there's freedom and free will
0: at play yeah. too. Yeah, you only control half of it. So, it yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing. Now, something else though, Sammy, I don't know if you picked up on this when I was reading it. Listen to this again. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to
1: bring peace, but a sword.
0: Is there something about that that reminds you of something else?
1: Seems like a very rabbinic phrase that maybe has been used by Jesus in a past teaching.
0: Yeah, Matthew five seventeen. He said, do not think that I have come to... Abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The reason I'm pointing this out, because I don't want anybody sitting there listening to the podcast going, Oh yeah, that's all really convenient for you, Paul. Back there in <laughs> Matthew 5.17, you were saying, Oh, we have to take this literally. And now all of a sudden you're kind of, you know, looking at the world a little differently, right? Listen, we did want you to take that literally back then. And and here, it's definitely very similar wording and, and where I don't know if I should say we're not asking you to take it literally, but we're definitely asking you to think about the meaning of the words and what is being said. And so it's definitely not as obvious, right? Maybe you think we're splitting hairs. I don't know. But listen, this isn't random. It's not capricious. This is our attempt to, and I'll use the word, reconcile the whole story in Scripture together. What we're trying to do is look for the interpretation that works best so that the whole story fits together. So, in Matthew 5.17, it was more the plain or literal interpretation that, that works best. It just, it fits with the whole of the story. What is, and we've used this phrase before, what's being said aligns perfectly with what it seems to plainly say, but here, not so much. What is being said definitely fits with the whole story, but it's not quite as obvious, at least in terms of what the text appears to plainly say, and so we have to work on this one a little bit. Now, You may hear my explanation, and you may agree, or you may disagree, or whatever, but just know we're not surprised. It's not like we didn't see the connection. These are thoughtful, interpretive moves, and I use that phrase, interpretive move, in the best sense. We're we're trying to figure out what move is it that brings the most agreement across just everything, all at once, together. And so... We just want you to know we're not, like, blind, and we're we're not trying to be goofy. This is carefully thought out. That's yeah, all I have to say about that. I agree. Now, okay, but it's, okay, still, this is kind of the downer stuff. Another thing you talked about, I've come to set a man against his father and a, a daughter. Against, I mean, this was bad stuff. I'd like to take you back, Samuel. Um, go back to Micah 7, uh, and if you could, let's read... Micah 7, six because I want you to hear how this isn't the first time this kind of
1: language or lingo has come up. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Hmm. Sounds like Jesus is like literally quoting that passage
0: (laughs) you think jesus knew micah chapter seven a little bit right yeah it's super close and in micah this is uh, i mean at that particular point it's like a switch in between micah's talking about the destruction of the wicked and he's moving on to talking a little more about god's salvation so interesting interesting connections but more importantly, and, and this is what I want you to, to see or take away from this, in this text, it, it sounds just awful, but what you're seeing is the use of opposites or extremes or whatever to highlight preference or priority. The, if we could just boil it down, the, the simplest way to say it is that we must prefer Christ in, above, over, all things. It doesn't mean that we all have to abandon family, friends, etc., just because we're Christians now. But choosing him and his ways may lead to some broken relationships, even some really close, intimate, wonderful... Familial. Yeah, familial uh, all i mean relationships that you cherish and and uh, you know what this could cause a problem and it's sad but it's true and it's required of us to be willing to make the choices for God for Jesus regardless of the outcome if you want to be worthy of Christ you must place him First, above all else, and I'd even like to point out this is analogous to the whole idea that we saw in the parables, like separating the wheat from the tares or the sheep from the goats or whatever. It's all the same kind of thing.
1: And it's not like Jesus wasn't speaking from experience and he was just talking about this principle in a theoretical sense. He lived this out with his own family, like there was... Some semblance of broken relationship between his mother and his brothers that they didn't understand his role within the kingdom, and it wasn't until after his death and resurrection that they finally got it right. Yeah, we saw
0: the 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 trouble in his family. What we are unsure of is we know it, it got fixed, but we don't know the timing. Was it really before he died, or did they really come around after? Mm-hmm. But yeah. It's a it's a real thing. And this whole idea, like talking about whoever loves father or mother more than me, right? All of that stuff. Matthew right here says it well, uh, and, and you get it. It kind of reads more like preference or priority. Uh, Luke says something similar. Why don't you read that, Samuel? It's from Luke chapter 14, 26.
1: If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children... And brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa. A lot of hate. Yeah. And if you were going to take
0: that literally, you'd be going, that's it. I'm kicking my whole family to the curb. Does that really sound like God, Jesus, Christianity, any <laughs> any of it? Of course not. That's ridiculous. But why? Why this language? And again, this is an even greater example of this idea of using extremes or opposites to highlight preference or priority. So when it says, "If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father," well, it's using hate as an opposite of love, and and what a first-century Jewish person would be hearing is. Anyone comes to me and doesn't prefer me over even his own family, you just can't really be my disciple. I have to take preference. So, and here's, here's a way to think of that. Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah. And it says, if you go back and look at the text, it says that Jacob hated Leah, but Rachel he loved. Did Jacob really hate her?
1: seems very unlikely. Oh, that's ridiculous. But he did prefer
0: Rachel. And we kind of saw this in the story about, uh, uh, this was, uh, maybe it was this during the Sermon on the Mount or whatever, a servant with two masters, right? You can't, you love the one and hate the other. Okay. You Mm -hmm. don't really hate the one and, and love the other. Just, you prefer one. Now, You know, given the types of relationships and that kind of stuff, sure, it might lead to, you know, some sort of weird hatred over time or whatever. But the point is, understand sometimes when you're seeing these opposites, these extremes, and it sounds horrible to you, it could be that there's something idiomatic behind it, something about first century Hebrew, the thinking and culture and whatever that that adds to this. And so that's very important that you see because that's what's going on here. He even continues on. He's like, whoever does not take his cross, which, okay, Samuel, the fact that he's talking about taking up a cross at this point in the story, that's crazy. Nobody, nobody understands what's coming. Nobody has this idea that Jesus is going to end up on a cross. And we're not even certain
1: that Jesus does. Because we're not at the we haven't gotten to the transfiguration yet. Have no, we? no, none of that. Jesus. <laughs> and it's the funny thing about Jesus is, I mean, it's easy, easy,
0: easy to imagine that he just knows everything that's coming. And you know, maybe, probably, I don't know, but sometimes little things that he says, little things that he does, little what, little parts of the story, you're just not sure. But for these guys, I mean, this is a people they're occupied, they're oppressed by Rome and Here's one thing that's certain, crucifixion, this was an unambiguous symbol of death, super common. It was literally visible to them all the time, all around them. And still, Jesus is saying, "You you got to be willing to place God's will above your own. You've got to be willing to take up a cross, meaning choose his will even unto death, even death on a cross. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's just like Jesus is doing. And, you know, that, that whole idea of following him, right? We've got we've to be willing to do that. If you can't do that, you will not attain eternal life. That's harsh. You must lose your life, or at least be willing to, to actually find eternal it that is your eternal life and samuel how many times do we have to say this this points right back to adam and eve in the garden they sought their own will their own desire the things of this world and what was the result they chose their own will above what god
1: wanted that for them
0: yep and it led to exile death oh! Yeah. I mean, if, if we want to break down the Bible story into, hey, is there like a super easy theme? Yeah, life and death. Mm-hmm. They chose those things and ultimately it led to death. Life, obviously, is the opposite of death. And therefore, it's the opposite of everything we're talking about, everything that we saw in Adam and Eve. You have to be seeking God's will, God's desire, foregoing the things of this world over and above your own, right? I mean, it's got to be His way or no way. It's simple. But it's not easy, and we're going to say it one more time. Christianity is a high calling. There's just no
1: getting around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it kind of gets it into that new identity aspect too, about taking up the cross. I'm my mind is going to the Apostle Paul again and his letter to the Corinthians about saying that if if anyone is living following Christ, he's a new creation, it's not him who lives, uh, it's Christ who lives in him, and there's this, even this, I just read this the other day, um, back in Jewish culture with proselytes, so the non-Jewish people who wanted to convert to Judaism, um, and there was this rabbinic tradition that um, ethnic Torah-observant Jews were not allowed to ask any questions to a proselyte regarding their former life before converting because of any association with paganism or these other uh, religious beliefs that may have had this negative context. It's almost as if they're saying, like, whatever happened to your life before you converted to becoming a Jew, it does not exist anymore. It's gone. Yeah. And that is the image that we all need. I don't think,
0: and I'm going to say we because I'm including myself and you forever, uh, for sure. I just don't think that we understand what it means to become a disciple, to become born again, to become a new creation. I'm not saying that you're going to become, you know, Mr. Sinless and, you know, be another Jesus, but i tell you what, it's going to look way more like him than the church has actually proven, at least in my lifetime. So yeah, oh, it's so good. So good. I hope people listening, somehow, somebody somewhere is just going, you know what? I'm tired of this manby pamby stuff. I'm going to be a real Christian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. All right. So if we try to go on, something interesting happens. So remember, he started out, hey, I'm going to send you on a mission. He started talking about things, sounded like he was telling them this is what it's going to look like on your mission. And then we said, uh oh, now it sounds like it's he's moved out talking about future things, whatever. Now, this point, uh, it it fits in nicely. And yet at the same time, it kind of feels like we're going back to the discussion about the immediate mission. I don't know. You can decide for yourself, but that's what it looks like to me. Let's see what it says. We're in Matthew 10, uh, verses 40 to, uh, well, actually, we're going to go through chapter 11, verse 1. Anyway, he says this, whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Kind of a weird little addition on the end, but whatever. <laughs> Let's talk about what we got. So again, I think it kind of feels like even though we we seem to move away from the immediate mission, it feels like it's... It's moving back to that immediate mission, or, or at least it's really relevant to it. And here's the thing. If, as they go out on this mission, if they don't receive you, what does it say here? Uh, he, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Remember the last thing that he had said back in like verse 15 or 16, wherever we were, if they don't receive you, they will be worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. So, you can kind of see how those two pieces connect anyway. But this idea, whoever receives you, receives me, uh, we see there's this idea that the apostles were sent in his name. And, And for some simple purposes here, let's just say it's as if they were Jesus himself. They were coming in his name. Now, similarly we could say that God sent Jesus in his name. So that would be as if he, Jesus, was God himself. Now, okay, I'm not saying that he wasn't. I, I totally get that, but I'm, I'm trying to get across this idea of in his name. So they were showing up at somebody's house, and, and so, the, so, okay, the apostles show up, and it's in fact like Jesus showed up if they received him. In fact, it's even more than that. The apostles show up. It's like Jesus shows up. You know what? It's as if God showed up. They were in his name. That's a big deal. And this holds true for us today. We also can act or move or whatever you want to call it in his name. We become disciples, if you will, through his writings. We, in some sense, can act as apostles. Now, you don't have to be out there calling yourself, I'm the Apostle Paul. Okay, no, you, but you can act in the role. You can can move and, 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 and do things
1: in his name. So it's just a cool thing. And that, that concept is not a new concept either because you can look back in the Torah with the priesthood um and then even in Exodus God tells Israel like I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests and he set up the priesthood for those men to be representatives of God to the Israelites and then the Israelites were to look at the priest and their manner of living how they related to God and emulate that yes. in their own everyday life to those who did not know God's story. They were going to be representing God to the world. So it's it just, he's con, God is continuing that theme here now. Yeah. Discipleship.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool, cool picture. And, and, you know, there's benefits to it. The one who receives, right? If you recognize and accept a person who is actually fulfilling their purpose in God, fulfilling their role, and I'm going to say being truly human, the way we were meant to be, and and providing hospitality, uh, all kinds of things, then you are going to be affected by that. In a sense, the blessing that they are receiving will overflow onto you. And you might even think uh, they might even bestow a blessing of some kind. I don't know what, but, right, they could. So just like this was true for them back then, it works for us today. You know, it's a good thing. And and so you receive somebody, what does it say? Because they were a prophet and somebody because they're righteous. Uh, 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 and, and then it gets even better. Uh, what's the one? A cup of cold water, why? Because he is a disciple. Now, when any of your acts of kindness and acceptance, even something as simple as a cup of water, when they are motivated because you see that a person is a disciple of Christ, well, Much like what we just talked about, you will also be affected. There's some sense in which their blessings will overflow onto you. And you never know, they may even bestow a blessing. So it's a really cool picture of how God is is moving through people, and yet people have a very active role. They are a prophet. They are a righteous person. They are a disciple, right? It's, It's a big deal. Uh, I I did want to mention this. It says something about uh, one of these little ones and uh, people very quickly go to this idea that they're children and I just don't think that that's the case here and and the reason I say that is because it says, let me read it, uh, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, okay, so because of that, I think what we're really referring to would be like the new, inexperienced believers or disciples. Uh, we think of them uh, as children of God, right? And and you know that whole idea of, oh, well, I'm I'm like a brand new, brand new uh, just born baby in the faith, and I need to mature and all of that. So when we're talking about little ones, I think we're talking about newer, earlier, immature believers. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of actual children. Uh, and, and you could also think of it uh, maybe just in the general sense of those, the, the humble ones, those who, uh, what did we say? They, uh, they are like a child, mm-hmm. right? So they're humble in that way. So I don't know, just thought I'd mention that. Uh, oh, and <laughs> the big weird ending. So basically, this is the end of all of Jesus's instructions for the immediate mission, and also what we think are extra instructions that exceed the mission, pointing to the future, all disciples, all apostles, whatever. Anyway, the 12 head out. And at least from this text, you get the idea that Jesus is continuing alone. And, I, you know, for sure it's without the 12, but he may have had other disciples with him. We don't really know, but it, it seems kind of like that would be normal for him. But it says that he continues visiting cities in and around the Galilee. And he was giving instructions about God and the kingdom. That's the part about him teaching. And he was proclaiming that the kingdom was at hand. So that's the the preaching part. And and of course, that's what the, uh, the apostles were doing as well. And so we could say, in some sense, the ministry is now seven times its original size. Because remember they went out in pairs. So you had six pairs plus the original Jesus, that's seven, right? But here's the thing. We don't know how long this covers. It could have been days, could have been weeks, could have been months. But considering what they were doing and all of the things that were going on, I, I think I think it's probably better to think of a, a rather extended period of time, some number of weeks or maybe even months. Now, some And I don't know all of where they get to this. Some suggest that the disciples actually went into a city or a town, whatever, first. And then Jesus would follow behind after. He'd let them do the initial work, and then he would follow behind. Now, we can't really say it with certainty. It's not like in the text. We don't have any explicit record of it. But what's interesting is even right here, it says, he, meaning Jesus, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, to be fair, there's definitely more than one way to take that phrase. You could you could uh, interpret that different ways, but the idea it's at least for me it's a very pleasing image because again it, it kind of relates to how we are today. We might expect our lives to go and impact the world around us. We enter into a place first, and Jesus follows behind to sort of finish or complete the work. I don't know, it's a cool picture.
1: It almost feels as if the apostles are kind of being mini Elijahs or mini John the Baptists in terms of heralding this Messiah coming into whatever particular city that they're in. They say, this is what the kingdom is, and it's what it's going to be about, and this is yeah. who our Messiah is, and then Jesus comes and shows that to them directly afterwards, and it's yeah, we're emulating that now. Uh, the time is different, but like the second coming of the Messiah is going to be him returning and showing what people have been heralding him, uh, yeah. like what we're anticipating now. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. That's so good.
0: Uh yeah, and, and I think you're right. And the funny thing is, you mentioned John the Baptist. And we are about to I don't know if you've ever been watching a TV show or a movie where the scene changes and you're kind of sitting in your seat going, What the heck is going on? Where am I? Who are these people? What's that <laughs> right? We're about to do a scene change in our walk through the gospel, Samuel. You ready for this? Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> It is. It's such a different place, but here we go. Uh, We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. This is also Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, and Luke chapter 9, verses 7 to 9. And in this case, I think I'm going to read from Mark. And it says this, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus's name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Okay. Where are we? What is going on? So Mark and Luke, they're trying to continue the story after the sending out of the 12. At least that's the way it is, you know, chronologically in their books. Matthew has it placed after Jesus gets rejected back in Nazareth. Totally weird. Now, we're not going to pursue it a whole lot here other than to say, look, We're trying to go through the Gospels in a chronological order, and sometimes that gets these weird breaks like you're seeing right here. If you were to go through any of the Gospels individually, from front to back, the order is going to seem very different. And so when you're doing that, it's also really, really interesting to do because then you're going to start asking questions like, why did Matthew choose to put it in this order? If if there's any, you know, correct ordering, the chronological ordering, you know, and and Matthew or Mark or Luke or John or whoever, they got this strange sequence. Why did they choose the order that they did? Because it's probably trying to get you to see something that you wouldn't see just going through chronologically. But we're not going to get into that. It's fun. It's interesting. You should do it on your own, but we're only going to go through one way, and that's chronological. So there you go. Wanted to say that. But here's kind of the thing. We got Herod Antipas, and he has John the Baptist beheaded, and then he starts hearing about Jesus. Now, his response in Matthew and Mark is very interesting. He thinks that John has been raised from the dead and he's walking around under this new identity, Jesus. He thinks that this explains all of the miraculous powers at work in Jesus. Now, here's the thing. It would have been super easy for Herod to get some history on Jesus as his own person, but Herod might have been having just a little bit of a guilt, freak out. You know what I'm saying? You get, you get to feeling guilty about a thing and you can see things all kinds of weird. So I don't know, could be that. But that's the way Mark and Matthew present the story. It seems like Herod also wasn't the only one trying to make these kinds of connections. Others also thought that Jesus was John, now risen. Uh, others were thinking Jesus was Elijah or one of the prophets, maybe even the prophet, the prophet like Moses. And this should all sound familiar. Who else? Who else have we seen Samuel? Where everybody's going? Well, I don't know. It could be Messiah. It could be Elijah. He could be the prophet. Who were they saying that about? Um, Jesus, John the Baptist. Oh, okay. Right? They said it about John the Baptist first. Nobody could figure out who he was, and he kept saying, "Nope, I'm not Messiah. He's still coming." Now they're trying to say all the same things about Jesus. They just gotcha. can't figure out these guys. They don't. They just don't get it but it's kind of neat seeing the similarities. And, and I guess that sort of adds to the idea why they're going, oh, well, John the Baptist was raised from the dead and he's no Jesus. Ah! It's just such a weird thing, but whatever. Now, uh, to, uh, this is also important. Luke offers a slightly different take. He says that Herod was perplexed by Jesus's appearance on the scene and his whole ministry. He doesn't know who this Jesus guy is, But he wants to see him. He's interested. Now, coming up, Mark's going to tell us that Herod also is perplexed over John's teaching and, you know, whatever. The thing is, humans are complex. Herod, totally bad guy, whatever. But he seems to have been, in his own weird way, kind of attracted to John and Jesus. This message, which was the same message. But it was never enough to become a disciple. And we're going to see more about that as we continue.
1: And this should be testament on the closeness of the message between John the Baptist and Jesus, and that what we talked about previously with once John was imprisoned and then later killed, sort of symbolically showed this passing of the baton of the kingdom message that John started yeah. and then Jesus took up and they both were saying the exact same thing about repenting because the kingdom is near so yep. this this way that Herod is interpreting the two of them just shows that the message between the two of them is the same yeah and even for us looking back it's like how did it end for John the Baptist
0: death how's it going to end <laughs> for Jesus right? So you could see it all in there. Such a great picture. Such a great picture. But now, okay, I I talked about how we were doing the real uh, uh, discombobulating scene change or whatever, right? But we're going to do it again. Uh, Except this time, it's sort of like we're going to go back in time. So we're going to read, this would be Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 5, Mark chapter 6, verses 17 to 20. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we'll talk about Uh, So I'm going to read from Mark. It says this. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly.
1: Does that sound like the Herod you know? Seems like there's some internal struggling going on a bit. Yeah, yeah. Again, humans are complex.
0: You just never know what's going on in their head. But again, you know, if we were watching a show or a movie, we might get that little thing that pops up on the screen, I don't know, 12 hours ago or three months earlier, or you know what I'm saying? It's like we've gone back a little bit in time. The uh, uh, We're going to go back and get a little more detail of how it was that Herod had come to behead John, right? So it's kind of cool. We're going to get to see it. So here you go. You got Herod Antipas. He has a brother named Philip. They each rule regions of their own. And in this case, they even share a boundary, okay? Now, at first, earlier on here, Philip's wife was Herodias. Herodias was Philip's wife. but. Herod kind of meets her along the way. It's a long story, whatever. Herod ends up taking her as his own wife. Now, this was mutually agreeable to Herod and Herodias, but not so much for Philip. Now, we're not going to see it here, but a little bit later, we will get a picture of how Philip, he got a little bit of paid back. He's promising Herod he was going to help him in some war, and he ends up betraying him. So it's kind of, I don't know, funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, Philip gets, gets, uh, gets the short end of the stick and then he finds a way to get back. But anyway, it's story uh, story's quite involved. It's very interesting. Too much for here. Uh, and it would just be a distraction. So, but here you got Herod. He's like, it's, it's almost like he's wanting to ride the fence. He wanted on one hand to be in power via Rome. Right, He wanted to be associated with the real power on the earth. And at the same time, he wanted to be considered great among the Jewish people. He even wanted to be thought of as a king, very much the way his dad did. Now, a lot of times we forget this. Herod was Jewish. Now, his ancestry was Idumean and Nabataean, but These groups were said to have been Jewish converts. I don't know that that's, you know, like 100% of these groups, but it was a big deal. These groups uh, converted to Judaism. And Herod has, we can see in history, he's adopted a nominally Jewish lifestyle. So he's he's playing around with the idea of being Jewish, and, and not just a little bit. Not enough for it to like matter and change him, but you know it was it was a, th- a real thing and so John the Baptist keys in on this he 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 understands that Herod wants to be a king, and so specifically king of the Jews, and so John confronts him according to the law of the Jews huh yeah, it's pretty smart. think that's who you want to be? Well, here are some of the rules, and the problem was that marrying your brother's wife. Well, okay, there was a situation in which that was lawful, even required, you know, when your brother had died and presumably had no children or whatever. You're supposed to carry on his name. This wasn't that situation because Philip was definitely still living. So this was way outside the bounds. This was sexual immorality, plain and simple. It was adultery, and this was unacceptable for the Jews. And John spoke out publicly and obviously ruffled some feathers. Now, it's weird because Matthew says that Herod wanted to put John to death, but he didn't because he feared the people, right? The people liked John the Baptist. They considered him to be a prophet. Mark, though, says that it was Herodias who wanted to put him to death. And it was actually Herod who stopped her because he feared John. He knew John to be a righteous and holy man. Those are two very different things. I don't Mm -hmm. know what's up with Matthew and Mark. We've talked about it. It's the beauty of eyewitnesses, right? It's going to look different, but somewhere in there, you're going to find the truth, the things that line up. And and again, this is idea. Herod was drawn to John's teaching. Herod was perplexed by John's teaching. And yet he wanted to hear him. Something about it, this is so funny, made him glad. You really got to just close your eyes, get some quiet time, and picture this whole scene and these people. This is amazing. Strange, weird, awesome. I don't know. It's crazy.
1: And part of the discrepancy between Matthew and Mark in the story might have something to do with the, you could say, the agenda that Matthew and Mark... Had with their accounts, I know that yeah Marty Solomon teaches that Matthew was written to Jews it was a it was a Jewish narrative that the target audience was, and that Mark was more of a Roman audience, and yeah. so maybe there's some type of cultural differences in painting hair to be less than ideal to the Jews and Matthew, and then in Mark making him more relatable uh, to a Roman audience in Mark. Yeah, yeah, very good points. Yeah, that's
0: another thing. It's, oh, you could study your Bible forever as long as you live and you're just not gonna get the bottom of it. But that's, it's such a real thing. What is the agenda of the writer? And so that all this stuff comes up, but we'd be here all night if we did that. (laughs) Let's uh, let's do the next little bit. Uh, This is Matthew chapter 14, verses six through eight and a little longer bit in Mark chapter 6, verses 21 to 25. And I'm going to go ahead and read from Mark, because it's got more detail that we care about. It says this, But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced... She pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, the head of john the baptist and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked saying i want you to give me at once the head of john the baptist on a platter who somebody's in trouble <laughs> so the plot thickens obviously here's herod having a birthday Uh, This is, of course, a grand adventure and self-indulgence. He's got every important person that he could convince to come there to his party. There's decadent food. The wine is flowing freely. You get the picture. And I'm just going to say this, by the way, Jews didn't celebrate birthdays. That was something Romans did. Herod. (laughs) And it's also possible... I read this in a couple of different places. I don't know how much weight it really has, but it's also possible it wasn't even actually his birthday. It was actually the celebration of the anniversary of his becoming Tetrarch. Now again, I don't know. It says birthday in a text, but whatever. He was he was celebrating some important date. That much we know. But all of a sudden, we find out that Herodias has a daughter. It's uh, Salome or Salome or probably something else. I've heard it pronounced both ways or however many other ways there are. But she's she's beautiful, apparently, and quite the dancer. And she dances at the party, and everyone is pleased. So here's Herod. He's filling the effects of the wine, probably wanting to make a show of himself, right, for his important guests. And he speaks words he's going to regret. He tells Salome that he will give her anything she asks. She just has to name it. And Mark says that he offered up uh, he offered even up to half of his kingdom. Now what's really important about that is that that was not for him to give. Herod really didn't have that power, that authority. Rome was the true owner of his kingdom. So Herod, he had totally stuck his foot in his mouth. In fact, he stuck his foot in his mouth and pretty much chewed all the way up to the hip bone. He messed up. But then Salome, you know, you, you don't really know what's going on in your head, but she goes straight to her mom. What do I ask for? And Herodias, this is the chance, right? According to Mark's version, Herodias wanted John dead, but Herod was the one who had stopped her. This was her chance. So she knew that Herod wouldn't do it on his own. So she told her daughter to ask for John's head on a platter. And Salome quickly complies. I love that. She came in immediately with haste uh, and, and, and asked. And, and so Herod, we've said this before, going to Shakespeare, Herod was hoist with his own petard. (laughs) That is the silliest phrase. I just love it. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Oh my goodness. What are we going to do, Samuel? Think we can do a sprint to the finish? I think we can. All right, let's do this thing. Get through this part of the story. Next section. It's Matthew chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. Mark chapter 6, verses 26 to 28. I'm going to read from Mark. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. All right, so as we can see, Herod is not happy about this at all. He is sorry. Mark says exceedingly sorry, but he's trapped by his own words. He couldn't go back on his word in front of all these important people. And just in case you have a moment where you're kind of starting to feel a little bit sorry for Herod, you don't really need to because he's still a really, really bad guy. So don't worry about that. But... And and I don't know. I I always look for positive character traits. I I think to Herod's credit, he doesn't hesitate. He immediately sends the executioner to get John's head. head. Now I know that's a gruesome tale, but Herod was in a bad spot, and you know what? He stood up and took it like a man, so to speak. In fact, the the executioner he does the work right there in the prison, and he brings back the head, and he left the body. It's kind of, kind of important. Now, here's something we often miss. Samuel, this prison, it wasn't right next door. This thing is far away. Herod is up, you could think of this uh, sort of like on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee in Tiberias. John is imprisoned down in the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee in Maccareus.
1: Oh, Macarius. Sorry. I, I was thinking it, Macarius, Macarius. That's Macarius. right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're trying to hurry.
0: It would, here's the important part. What, what are we saying? It would have taken days in a single direction for the executioner to leave, behead John, and return. It would have taken at least four or five days, maybe more. And Okay. Here's the weird part. You know, everybody in their head, they're they picturing it. Everybody's at this party. Herod says, okay, go get me his head. The guy goes off. A few minutes later, he returns. Everybody gets to see it. That's the way we envision it, usually in our heads. But if it takes four or five days, was the party still going on? And you would immediately think, no, no way. However, it wasn't, completely unheard of for a party to last for days and it's very possible that all of these people who witnessed all of this stuff they may have stuck around they may have tried to keep that party going because they wanted to see the end but that's such a crazy picture four or five days while all this is going on and who knows maybe he brought it back and the party was still going on or maybe not whatever Anyway, the point is the executioner give John, gives John's head to Salome, who in return gives it to Herodias, and then it doesn't tell us, but you got to wonder, what the heck did she do with it? It's gruesome, no matter what, but it's just weird. They just leave that part out. And here's the thing. Again, we're not going to spend time on it, but think about this idea of Salome dancing before the king and, and all of that. This whole story... Describing the death of John has some very interesting parallels back to the story of Esther. And this is going to be one of those situations, Samuel. We're not going to tell anybody what it is. You got to go there and look for yourself. See what you can see. I think you'll find it fun. And I already gave you a really, really good hint. So, Mm -hmm. you know, go check it out. So anyway, there's that. And okay, final bit. Uh, Matthew fourteen twelve and Mark six twenty nine. I'm just going to read them both. Matthew says this, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Mark is similar. He says, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So final bit says that they took his body. Who is the they that we're talking about? These are John the Baptist's disciples. And we would have to assume they they followed all of the customary rituals in putting John to rest in a tomb. They did all of that, even though they've just got a body without a head. Additionally, we find out, they surely they understood that Jesus would have wanted to know what had happened, but it's only after they've buried him that they go and find Jesus and actually tell him what's going on. So that's kind of an interesting thing. And just to point this out, since the story started with people wondering, hey, is Jesus, is he just John raised from the dead or, you know, whatever? I wonder, or I don't know, how great would it be, Samuel, if Jesus had actually gone and raised John the Baptist? from the dead that would have been cool oh that would have totally freaked everybody out especially those who were thinking it was john reincarnated and blah blah. blah. <laughs> That's it, mm-hmm. just so good but anyway it, it doesn't matter because as we know jesus didn't do it which means that wasn't what the father was doing mm-hmm. so there you go
1: and i think it's important as we leave off here especially in the time between now and next week's lesson with john's disciples coming to tell jesus that he had died uh think about jesus's relationship to john that they were related they were cousins there are some interpretations i'm not saying that i hold to them but some suggest that there was like a rabbinic type of relationship student versus teacher between john and jesus with that passing of the baton so I just think that's important uh, for you to wrestle with as we pick up next week, because I think that it's going to show, showcase how Jesus responds humanly, emotionally to the, this news. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Very, very, uh, well, it's, I think it's difficult for us to really understand and imagine what their relationship was like, uh, but just in the simplest Sense there, there was a closeness there, mm-hmm. you know. But we don't have to say anything more. We don't have to ascribe to anything more than that. But yeah, it's it's a big thing. So yeah, yeah. Next week's lesson, phew, we got a lot of stuff going on. It's it's just so amazing. It feels like we've done so much, and there's so much yet to come. It's just, I don't know if anybody listening's having a good time, but we're having an all-out blast. <laughs> oh yeah, but. We still got to hit that big red
1: button, Samuel. Let's end it. Okie dokie. Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at wwwokie And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okie dokie at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll see you all next week.